Hi, this is Renya Nanthapantala, founder of For a Green Environment, and I want to thank you for joining us today for another episode of Women in Environmental Science. This podcast is to inspire other people and to educate them about the work researchers in environmental science are doing, specifically the issues they face in the industry, the solutions they make, the roadblocks they push through, and most importantly, what they are learning to teach the society to keep the environment clean. Keep listening to hear this episode of Women in Environmental Science. All right, so hi, um, welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Serenia Nadapantala, and I have Miss Allison Crimmins with me. Um, yeah, so your work on climate change and its effects are extremely interesting. Uh, could you explain what you do in your field and in your research? Sure, um, I'm glad to be here. I'm happy to talk about my science. Uh, a lot of what I work on is uh, the, the impacts of climate change on human health. And so I look across a lot of different uh, elements of human health and how climate change can affect uh, our bodies and our, our lives. So thinking about how extreme heat uh, affects the body or um, how health is disrupted during extreme weather events or after extreme weather events, how our healthcare system is disrupted. So I, um, I think about how climate change affects the, the diseases, uh, especially spread by ticks and mosquitoes, and how climate change can affect our air quality. And even um, thinking about things like how it affects um, our mental health. All of those things I just listed already would mm -hmm. affect your mental health if you were uh, affected by them. But climate change also has a, an impact on our mental health. So. Uh, I, I, uh, I kind of think about health uh, in a, from a lot of different angles and how climate change can affect that. Right. I think it's great that like um, you're able to find information so that we can connect it to ourselves. Right. Because some climate scientists, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, they're, they're great, obviously, but they don't have this connection to like human health. Right. They're just saying, oh, in the future, temperature is going to rise. But like what you're doing, you're like, you have a, you're, you're giving us like something, okay, climate change is going to affect us. <laughs> yeah, it's really relatable. It makes it, mm -hmm. it makes climate change like not just something that's happening far away in some far off future to some far away people in some other land. It's happening, you know, right here in the chair I'm sitting in. It's happening to me, to my body, to my family and kids and, and aunts and grandparents, you know, it, it like, it makes climate change about you and your family and not, not about polar bears or ice sheets, which are also important, mm -hmm. um, but maybe a little less relatable to some people. Yeah. So there are some people who don't think climate change is man-made and it doesn't affect humans. Um, if you had a chance to change like a group of these people's minds, uh, what would you say to them? Yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard question. There's like a whole field of science uh, just trying to answer that question and, and how scientists can better communicate to people um, the, the realities, because for some reason, climate change has become a lot more political than other forms of science. Right. Uh, like my husband works on cancer, and he doesn't have to go around convincing people that cancer is bad uh, or, you know, or that, that it's real and that people get it. You know, it, it's, um, it's not a part of his day job, but but mine still consists a lot of uh, convincing people that, that uh, humans are the cause of climate change. Um, and my background is in uh, paleoclimatology, actually. So I started off by working on 
uh, reconstructing climate change that happened tens of thousands to millions of years ago. And so I think when I talk to people about um, people who are a little bit more on the skeptical side, I can come at it a little bit more from an angle of like how unusual the changes we're seeing now are compared to what Earth has experienced over the last you know, hundreds of thousands of years. I can kind of put it in that context. Um, so that's usually the, the, the angle that I try for because it's what I know. Mm -hmm. So I guess my next question would be, um, how unusual is this climate um, <laughs> spike we're going through? Yeah, really, really, really unusual. Yeah, um, from a geologist point of view, we tend to talk about very rapid shifts happening. And, and when a geologist says that, they mean you know, thousands of years. Uh, and we're seeing things in decades that, that would normally take place over many, many, much longer timescales. Um, right. So yeah, the shift is, uh, you know, we're seeing temperatures that the earth hasn't experienced for like 800,000 years. Uh, we're seeing things happen so much faster. And I think um, that's gonna be a really big challenge because it's so much harder to adapt to something that's changing that quickly. Right. Yeah, and like, um, there's like a bunch of climate models that predict things in 2050, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's that that's in my lifetime. That that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, when I started working on climate change, we talked about what it would be like in 2020 and 2030, and and well, we're we're there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you said that like uh, you were looking at models from 2020 uh, to 2020, right? So what, do you, what uh, did you notice anything that um, is actually happen, happening right now? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, something that I remember learning about in school was just the increase in extreme weather events, um, you know, the, the frequency and severity of extreme weather events. And that was something that we were taught. And, uh, you know, if you look around, you see that happening today. And, and I actually thought when I was younger that, you know, maybe people won't really start believing in climate change until we start seeing all of these extreme events happen over and over again. But then we're, I mean, we're there. Like, you yeah. know, we have hurricanes coming right after one another. We have mm -hmm. California and Alaska on fire every year. Um, you know, we see flooding in the middle, Midwest and we see these torrential downpours in the Northeast and, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're there. Um, so yeah, that's, um, it's one of those things like you really don't want to be right about, you know, yeah. like, no, there's no climate scientists who are like, told you so, uh, you know, you don't, you don't want to be right about those things, but um, we're, we're in the future now. It's, it's not something that's just going to happen to us in 2100. We're, we're experiencing a lot of climate impacts today. Right. Like even like heat waves and droughts and all those sort of things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think it's more of like the, um, poorer people who don't get much of a say in like uh what the what the um decision makers are going to do right that feel more of these uh effects oh yeah for sure it's um you know when you when you work on health and all these different ways that climate change can affect your health it becomes evident that it can affect everyone um but it doesn't affect everyone equally. It's all, there's a huge disparities in the populations that climate change affects the most. So especially um, people of color, children, elderly people, uh, homeless people, or people with occupations where they're outdoors a lot. Um, 
there's a lot of um, pre people with pre-existing health conditions that are at a higher risk uh, from climate change impacts. Right. Um, so yeah, and, and those people that I've just listed also tend to be the ones who have um, the, the least voice at the table of who gets to decide what we're doing. Yeah. So they're the most affected and they have um, the least voice. Uh, but I am very hopeful that we're beginning to see some of that change. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So um, I guess I would ask, uh, um, what are the effects of global warming? Like a summary, because there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I guess to summarize, it's it it really will affect a lot of uh, a lot of the way we live. So, I think we're very comfortable in in our lives, um, but there's not an element that won't be affected by climate change. You know, it 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 affects the very air we breathe and the water we drink and the food we eat. If uh, you like playing outdoor sports, it's going to affect your sport. Uh, if you, you know, if you are a doctor or in the medical profession, it's going to affect the, the, you know, the diseases or the uh, health outcomes that your patients are coming in with. If you like, you know, hiking or fishing or hunting, uh, climate change affects all of those things. So it's not, um, it's hard to summarize in any one thing, uh, right. but I suppose if there's, you know, if there's something you care about and something you like doing, uh, unfortunately, it's it's quite likely that climate change is going to threaten that. And so it's it's also your responsibility to help protect that thing that you love and, and that you like doing. Right, definitely. And even like like you said, it, it affects everything. And I like how you said fishing because that made me think about like we're um, putting plastic in like the oceans. Um, these fish are eating like microplastics and just regular plastics and we're eating the fish. It's just affecting everything, right? The pollution we're yeah. doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we kind of, um, at least in the U.S., I'm, I'm more familiar with, you know, what the U.S. has been like, but I think there was a, you know, a, a booming culture in the middle of uh, the 20th century where it was like we valued um, convenience over uh I don't know, thriftiness or not being wasteful. Uh, and, and there was this, you know, idea of like, oh, all these things you can use once and then throw away and you never have to think about it again. And there's this idea that, um, you know, throwing something away is free uh, and that polluting is free and that there's no, no cost to emitting something in the atmosphere. When of course there is a huge cost to it. We just don't put a price tag on it. Uh, so we haven't valued it in our past. And I think, you know, moving forward, that's going to be a huge cultural shift in, in the way we value things. Right. Like, um, like you said, it's like coming back for us right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, we're, we've uh, talked about like uh, food, food, uh, there's like foodborne illnesses, right? Like mm -hmm. climate change is affecting the food we eat. So how does that work? Yeah, climate change affects our food in a, in a couple different ways. You mentioned foodborne illnesses. Um, you know, there's, of course, if you, you know, we're all familiar if you leave food out, um, you know, outside in a hot picnic or outside of the fridge, it can go bad or you can get sick. Um, you know, salmonella or E. coli can grow on it. Well, of course, those things grow faster in warmer temperatures. Uh, and we're going to be facing more extreme events that cause power outages. So people's food might go bad in their fridge or 
you know, people at picnics are going to be out in the hotter weather. So uh, it can affect foodborne illnesses that way. It can affect our food production. Uh, so thinking about um, everything from growing it to, uh, you know, the whole reaping and sowing and storing and packaging and distributing, that whole chain uh, is affected by climate change. So, the, you know, the way we distribute food a lot in this country is, um, you know, there's huge barges on the Mississippi, for instance. Well, during a drought, those barges can't get through. And during a flood, those barges are held up. So even thinking about how climate change affects the distribution of the food once it is produced. Mm -hmm. And then one of the ways that, um, you know, I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with, uh, climate change can affect the actual nutrient quality of the food you're eating. Uh, so there are a lot of foods uh, that when they're grown under a higher CO2 level, they actually, um, the carbohydrate to protein ratio is changed. So you get more carbs and less protein if it's grown under a high CO2 atmosphere. And so that means the piece of bread you're gonna eat, you know, 20 years from now is gonna be less nutritious than the piece of bread you eat today. Um, so just thinking about that in terms of, um, you know, world hunger or <laughs> uh, disease kind of moving forward, there's some pretty big implications of, um, you know, how extreme weather, how rising temperatures, how rising CO2 will affect every element of our food chain. Right. And yeah, like, especially like our very intricate food web, right? Yeah, that, that's yeah. an issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, um, like you said, when there's warmer climates, uh, there is more uh, bacteria, like mold that grows on our foods, right? So um, that actually, it's, it's like, it's like a virus, I think. And <laughs> now that we're taking this during like the COVID time, I think we're becoming more aware of like, we're like, we're able to like take a step back and like, okay, this is, this is what we're doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So like, um, yeah. go ahead. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a very unusual time and, um, it, you know, that's another thing that we were taught in school about, uh, you know, the risk of pandemics like this. Um, but I guess it always seemed like something that, you know, people threatened would happen and I, I never thought it actually would, but here we are. Uh, and it's, it, it again goes to show like, there's great things about the globalization of our society, but there's also, uh, you know, scary things about it too. And the way that um, some countries, less so ours, has responded to uh, the pandemic just shows that, you know, we. We can work together when we want to. Uh, we can solve really huge, hard global problems when we want to. Mm -hmm. uh, and this won't be the last one. So um, yeah. better use it as practice. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And like, um, even during this, um, like I was just said, during the pandemic, we're like staying at home. Uh, we've like learned how to live a more greener life, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I actually, I hope a lot of these changes like, I, I really hope we don't go back to normal. You know, I hope a lot of these changes stick. You're, you're seeing cities that have um, stopped traffic on main streets with restaurants so that the restaurants can pull, you know, the tables out into the street and people are walking and biking and having dance parties in the middle of the street. And it's, it's beautiful. I hope we can, I hope we can keep doing that. You know, Definitely, I yeah. think, you know, it's, become obvious that there are a lot of people who could always have worked from home, who always could have worked 
um, you know, virtually, which means that the workforce is hopefully going to open up to a lot of people with different abilities mm -hmm. that were always told that they weren't allowed to work in the way that they, they're able to work. Um, now we're all seeing, oh, it's perfectly fine. Yeah. We always could work this way. <laughs> mm -hmm. We're getting yeah, the some, same thing. Some of us, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I, I do, I hope, um, I hope some of these changes stick and, and are built upon post-pandemic. Right, and even like uh, transportation, uh, like you said, traffic has been stopped. And more importantly, not many planes or um, not many business people are like going from one country to the next using a plane, which takes up a lot of um, energy, right? And that's, yep. that's not good. So we're yep. learning that we don't need to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, speaking of green things, uh, what are some green things that you might do in the workplace uh, or just at home? And what are some things that like the rest of us can do? Oh, like um, personal things to be greener? Is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's, that's a good question. Um, I guess probably the biggest one is that uh, my husband and I haven't had a car for 10 or 12 years, but um, recently his job moved and, we, and he has to have a car. Uh, and so we bought an all-electric car, which is really fun. <laughs> um, we had, we had uh, the last time we owned a car was when we lived in California. And um, when we sold it, we were like, that's it. We're done with the internal combustion engine. Unless there's flying cars, then we'll, then we'll reconsider. But, <laughs> um, but we were like, that's it. We're done. And it, it kind of felt like well, in 10 or 12 years, we th I thought we'd be a little bit further along with, you know, electric vehicles. Uh, but we've lived in cities where we haven't had to have a car and we use public transportation and it's great. Um, but, but now that we uh, had to get one, I don't know why ever, I mean, they're expensive still, but it, they're really great cars. They're, they're very fun. And it's, um, it's made me think about this whole green movement of, um, I don't know, I, I, I hope that I hope that people can find ways to be green that don't feel um, like punitive or mm -hmm. like a bummer. Like, uh, you know, I think this whole um, dialogue about like, oh, we're going to take away your straws and we're going to take away your hamburgers and we're going to make you shiver in sweaters in winter with your thermostat turned down. Like that whole, that whole like um, picture that you're painting of the environmentalist suffering I don't think that's going to win a lot of people over. I think mm -hmm. um, I think the way the culture needs to shift is to think about how much more fun it is on this side, how much better right. it is, how much more just it is, um, and the, you know, driving this car, which is it's <clears throat> so fast and it's so easy, and I never have to go to a gas station, and it's I mean, it's so it's just better, and so it's mm -hmm. it's not something that I had to like uh, suffer from or um, you know you know, it's not like a hardship to do green things. Right. It's, it, it can be better. Um, so, sorry, I'm not sure if I totally answered your question there. No, no, I, I get it. Buy a, a, an electric vehicle, of course, but mm -hmm. um, I, I guess I'm just sort of like, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that the conversation moves away from shaming people uh, for using a straw or flying on an airplane. I hope it moves away to like, oh, there's a better option. There's other things right. we can do. Just right. like we were talking about with COVID, like those businessmen don't have to fly all, all over the world. We can be doing this. It's better. Yeah, exactly. And like, um, I really did like how you like said that 
we don't need to um, feel bad about like changing our straws, the, the straws we use, we should feel better, right? Like um, when you say that, I kind of think of instead of using plastic bags, we could have so much more fun with, uh, um, what's it called? Reusable bags, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. Like your yeah, kids could beautiful. paint them, you could paint them yourselves, have like a family project. That's so fun. And you could use it like um, whenever you yeah. go to the grocery store, you know, like flex your really nice <laughs> grocery bag. Yeah, exactly. It's an opportunity for art too. I mean, I think that's, um, I hope there's more art in the green movement move, moving forward. Like, you know, we mentioned straws. My, my sister gave me these um, like reusable gold, like gold plated fancy looking straws mm -hmm. and I don't even use straws but uh but when she gave them to me I started like you know occasionally putting them in my drinks and I feel super fancy when I'm using them you know it's like <laughs> it, it, it can be better yeah exactly yeah I get I, I I get that I really like that so um how how did you get interested in like the climate scientist or like what was your story <laughs> Yeah, um, I grew up in Indiana, uh, and so I, um, I I was really lucky. My parents moved us to a house when I was nine that had a pond in the backyard, and um, it kind of butted up against some empty lots that had uh, woods and creeks. So I I was that kid that was like, you know, swinging from vines and <laughs> tromping through creeks and climbing trees and. Um, so I think I was always really uh, interested in the outdoors and and then in protecting the thing that I love. Um, but also because I grew up in Indiana, I never really saw the ocean growing up. Uh, so when I went away to school, I, I decided to, um, I went to Michigan State, but I still decided to study oceanography uh, because I thought that would help me to one day see the ocean and it totally worked. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I studied oceanography and lived in California for a time and um, I, I, I loved doing that work. I loved studying the ocean, um, but I also hit a kind of a turning point in my career where um, I was sort of uh, trying to decide between, uh, you know, doing a PhD and kind of going full on into the oceanography and the paleoclimatology route Mm -hmm. We're sort of shifting, uh, and and I I took that shift, and I went into public policy, um, and I got a degree in public policy because I really wanted to try to bring more science to the policy discussion and make sure that you know every uh, the the policies that we have in this in the U.S. and internationally are very scientifically sound. Mm -hmm. So that's where I that's where I shifted, and it's it's been really um, you know it's been a great opportunity to do some science, like, you know, I still publish wonky papers and journals. Mm -hmm. um, but then I also get to do some communication and talking to people and, and thinking about how to um, make climate science accessible. Mm -hmm. And I get to see how the work that I'm doing is very relevant to policy and, and hopefully informs policy and decision makers, um, you know, from local levels to hopefully international levels. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that's, I guess that's my story. <laughs> right. So um, I'm a little bit curious. Do you, uh, is there like a relationship between like climate change and all the pollutions or all the pollutants we are putting in like the air and the water? Like, for example, plastic pollution and climate change. How are these like things related? Yeah, there's probably multiple ways they're related. Um, when we, a lot of our uh, emissions come from producing energy, but also from producing things, uh, you know, goods uh, like plastic, 
plastics or um, those sort of products that you use once and throw away. Um, of course, those are also using, um, you know, extracting things from the ground and putting emissions up into the air. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a lot of talk for many years about this idea of co-benefits. Have you ever heard of that? Um, no. You can explain. Well, good, because <laughs> I'm ready for us to get past the, the, this idea, but there was this, there's been this like long-standing notion that, um, you know, if you were to say there's a smokestack and you're producing some sort of pollution that's coming out of the smokestack, well, that pollution has a lot of different elements to it. It might have, you know, CO2, it might have nitrogen oxides, it might have mercury, it might have fine particulate matter, and all of those things have different environmental or uh, health outcomes or climate outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. And and there's this idea that if you, um, you know, if you address one of those pollutants, you might get a few benefits by reducing the emissions of the other ones, right? So we talk about this in terms of climate change, where you know, say you, um, you know, say you reduce uh, transportation emissions or or you know emissions coming out of a, a smokestack, you might also help the climate um, because that you might be reducing CO2 from those things. But I, I don't like this. I don't like the phrasing of it as um, co-benefits or ancillary benefits because. Um, at, all of these things are very interwoven. They're all connected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you just are looking at one thing, you're sort of missing this broader and beautiful picture of, of like systems thinking and how all of these things are interconnected and how, um, you know, every time you pull a string, a whole web, it, it, you know, is altered. And so I, yeah, I hope we can kind of um, rid ourselves of this notion of there's, you know, one action and one result and one cause, uh, but but really think more broadly about how the systems of how we produce uh, goods and services and how we get around and how we get our energy, how all of those things are very interconnected and how we can improve all of them and improve social justice mm -hmm. at the same time. Right, like everything's connected to each other. Right? Yeah, like, totally. And if you're making a car, there's things that um, that produce CO2 that get into the making of the car and then you're yeah. you're creating more CO2 yeah yeah or shipping the parts from all these different places mm -hmm. and, and then how those people made those parts there and how those people are treated or paid in that factory where those are made you know all mm -hmm. of these things are very interconnected definitely yeah so um I've I actually read your research on like how climate change is affecting pollen so could you elaborate more on your research paper yeah yeah, um, it's really interesting. There's four main ways that climate change affects pollen. So um, the first is that climate change can make um, uh, trees produce more pollen. Mm -hmm. uh, climate change can make the season uh, longer. So the pollen season can be longer. And then um, climate change can also affect the actual protein in the pollen that you're allergic to. So it's called allergen allergenicity. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you're more allergic to, the, to that protein. Um, and then the fourth way is a little slower. So the fourth way is, of course, climate change can affect where different plants grow. So you could have, over a longer period of time, um, trees and, and grasses um, shift their habitats. Right. So 
Um, that one's a little slower. The first three are pretty immediate and happening right now, though. We have more pollen for longer, and you're more allergic to it. Um, so this is um, one of those climate impacts that maybe isn't as drastic as an extreme weather event, and you don't see the sort of acute, um, not, not necessarily acute health outcomes that you do with things like um, you know, heat stroke or um, getting sick from water or vector borne or foodborne diseases. Um, but there's tons of people that have allergies. I mean, right. there's lots of people with hay fever in the U.S. Um, and of course, that also affects your, you know, your ability to go to work and, and go to school. It affects your mental health. It affects, like, again, the sort of web of things that are all right. connected. Um, how much money you're spending on allergy medication, you know, all of these things are, you know, can affect us. So mm. that's one of those impacts that is, you know, happening right now and will continue to happen in the future. Right. Um, yeah. So um, are there any other things that climate change affects that are happening right now, like excluding extreme weather events? Because of course we see that all the time, but like other things that are affecting like human health. Yeah, I think um, we're seeing, well, I was going to say drought, though I suppose that's still sort of extreme weather. It's just maybe on a slower, you know, you think of a wildfire or, or a hurricane as sort of an event, but mm -hmm. um, a drought can last, you know, seasons or years, yeah. as we saw in California, and that can affect, you know, our agriculture, it can affect jobs, it can affect um, people's economic well-being, and so that, that in turn also affects people's mental health. Uh, and their family connections, and um, in some cases, uh, violence. Um, so yeah, that's that's one that I think we're seeing now. Um, yeah, I think I think probably the most obvious ones are the extreme events and the heat. Uh, and I think I think the heat is going to be a big one. But I think what we're going to start seeing more and more of is, again, none of these things happen in isolation. So, um, you know, we have a, a pandemic going on right now, but we're also entering into wildfire season. So how does the, you know, how, how does the worsened air quality from wildfire affect people uh, at, who might get or have COVID? And does it make it worse? Do those things sort of interact together? Mm -hmm. uh, and then if you are living in an area where a wildfire is happening and you need to evacuate and go to a shelter, you know, how are we setting up our emergency shelters in the middle of a pandemic so that people are still safe from that? Um, or, you know, it, you know, it's important for people to work and play and go outside, but what happens when there's extreme heat and there's more ticks and mosquitoes, you know, happening at the same time? So like none of these things are happening in isolation. Right, yeah. It's um, it's kind of like a car at top speed going into a brick wall, right? Everything is just coming at you, flying at you, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, in your field, um, how is like the field kind of like growing? Is it, how has it changed over the last few years? It's changed a lot in terms of uh, recognition that climate change is a social justice issue, which I, you know, was not, I think, at least for a privileged white person like me growing up, I, that's not something I heard a lot when I was in school. And now it's becoming, um, 
I think it's becoming more well known, not just in the field, but even outside of the field of climate change, that these things are so intricately linked. Um, and, and this idea that we probably aren't going to solve climate change if we're just doing it again in isolation, that, mm -hmm. that, that we need to be addressing um, both environmental justice issues and climate change at the same time. And that part really excites me because um, I feel like there was a period of time, I don't know, where, where people were trying to like spend time convincing people that that was true. Mm -hmm. And now I see like young people sort of, you know, coming up into the field who you don't have to bother convincing them, but like, they understand how those things are intricately linked. And they're like, right. yeah, next, let's get onto the problem. You know, you don't have to waste time um, explaining why they're connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, um, it's very important to like learn the effects of climate change and like what, what's going to happen. So what, what I, I guess I don't like to ask like, why do you think it's important, right? Like, why do you think it's important for um, just students or just anyone to learn about climate change and what it might do to us? Well, I think it goes back to your question about, you know, can you summarize the impacts of climate change? And my response was, well, the things you love to do are going to be affected. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's important for students to understand that because, um, again, we we're kind of coming from generations where uh, pollution was free and and we didn't we didn't think there was like a cost associated with emitting things into the air and right. now we're going to have to start moving into a world where that's not so anymore mm -hmm. and so i think it's it's important for people to understand um you know the world that they're living in and the sort of like uh you know th their impacts as they move through their life on their own ecosystems <clears throat> and vice versa mm -hmm. uh, i also think it's really important because it's one of those things that's you know we're only going to solve it if people from all different fields are thinking and actively working on it so um i think i mentioned before like we need some artists <laughs> we need we need more artists working on climate change you know we need more doctors and nurses and health practitioners who are actively and loudly engaged in uh helping their patients understand climate change and advocating for climate action so that their patients aren't even getting these diseases to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we need people who, um, you see a lot of um, uh, Olympic skiers who are very vocal about climate change because it affects the thing they love. Mm -hmm. um, you see a lot of hunters and fishermen and, you know, and, and women um, who are, <laughs> who are uh, loud about climate change because it affects the thing they love. And so, you don't have to be a climate scientist to right. work on climate change. You know, you don't have to work in a lab with a white lab coat and, you know, goggles or anything like to, to be engaged in climate change. You can think about how it's affecting your family and the things you love and then use that connection. Use the thing that you love um, to, to help spread awareness and to be loud and vocal for action on climate change. Right. And like, like you said, the, uh, it's affecting our ecosystems. Like, um, Reptiles are definitely getting affected by this because they're so vulnerable to uh, climate changes. And like um, things like coral reefs are, are again, very extremely vulnerable yeah. to these. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, if you love snorkeling or you love um, finding lizards in the wild, like, you know, those are, those are activities that are going to be affected by climate change. Uh, and you can use your love for those things to, to find the right audience or find the right medium. Uh, for bringing climate change into that. Yeah.
definitely. So um, again, like getting back to how climate change is affecting diseases, like um, what what other thing or what other like research projects do you work on that um, talk more about this or, or anything? Just what other research projects do you work on? Um, I have worked a little bit on. Um, let's see, <laughs> there's, there's there's a few of them. Um, I. One of the big projects I've worked on has been looking at the costs of climate change, so the economic impact of climate change, which um, I, I mostly look at it from the health perspective. So if you're thinking about how climate change is affecting, um, you know, if people are getting sick or dying from extreme heat or from um, poor air quality or from these, you know, vector-borne diseases, um, of course, the, the first outcome is that health outcome, but all of those health outcomes have associated economic outcomes as well. There's, you know, the cost of, of going to a hospital or there's, there's a, you know, a cost associated with lost work or, um, you know, in, in a not, not necessarily like a grisly dollar sign way, but there's a cost to our society when people die before they should. Um, so all of those things have economic costs as well. And so um, it, it's sort of, it's, it, it can sound like putting a price tag on these things are, um, I don't know, like macabre or something, you know? Uh, but it's actually, you know, when we're developing policies and we, you know, it's, it's easier to understand the cost of a policy sometimes than the benefit. So if you're if you are instating a policy that um, could maybe reduce the impacts of climate change, mm -hmm. that policy will often have you know a, a price tag associated with the cost of enacting that policy. And there's a lot of people out there who will say, "Oh, well, the cost is too high. We shouldn't enact that policy." But mm -hmm. what they're not doing is adding up all the benefits of the policy. And so right. some of my work attempts just sort of from the bottom up. Um, build up how how much we would benefit in the U.S. if we addressed climate change. How many lives would we save? How many dollars would we save? Um, you know, how many roads and bridges and railroads would we not have to <laughs> rebuild? Um, you know, what what are the impacts on our energy costs or our water drainage or the coral reefs and the lap? You know, the the recreation loss um, when you can't go skiing or you can't go snorkeling or you can't um, swim in a lake that has harmful algal blooms. So, so thinking about how um, some of my research, you know, tries to estimate the economic benefit to the U.S. if we could avoid some of those climate impacts. Right. So um, what were your findings from this paper? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're huge. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the, the benefits of addressing climate change far, far, far outweigh the costs. And, uh, and, and I say that even, even acknowledging that our efforts to try to tally up and quantify the benefits of addressing climate change is, is um, missing a lot of really important pieces. So mm -hmm. even missing some of these like very important costs, um, the benefits still really far outweigh um, the costs. And so, sorry missing some of these benefits, um, missing some of the, the benefits in our calculations, they're still higher than the cost. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, one of the more surprising findings uh, of some work that I was on a couple years ago was looking at dust in the Southwest. 
-hmm. So thinking about how um, as climate change increases drought, we'll see more dust and more dust storms in, you know, the, the sort of Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada sort of area. Um, but even going up into California and as far as Washington, um, that whole area will start to see more dust kicked up in the air if, if, if we experience more droughts. Mm -hmm. And that dust has a lot of respiratory or cardiovascular impacts on people. <clears throat> and um, that was one, that was something where I thought that it, the costs, you know, the, the impacts of the dust on human health and then the cost of those impacts I knew that they were there, but I didn't know how big they were. And so when we did the study and we got the final number, I was like, no, no, we made a mistake. Like, go back, check all these numbers. And they're like, no, this is right. I'm like, no, no, just check one more time. And it's, I mean, it's actually one of the, even though it's just those four states looking in the Southwest area, it was one of the biggest impacts economically in the U.S. Um, because um, that fine dust and that particulate matter has such mm -hmm. intense um respiratory and cardiovascular impacts on people, especially right. people with asthma. Um, so, so there's surprising things like that. Because mm -hmm. we keep breathing in air. I mean, if we don't breathe in air, we can't really live. Yeah, we keep breathing in air, yeah. <laughs> and like there's like microscopic particles that can get in our lungs and that's a big issue. Yeah, some of that dust has um, fungal spores in it. And those fungal oh. spores, when they get in your lungs, can give you a disease called valley fever. Uh, and it's especially, um, uh, like we were talking about, it, it can affect everyone, but it doesn't affect everyone equally. So this mm -hmm. is a really big concern for, um, for example, for people who are working in agriculture, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, which tend to be a lot of migrant farmers in that area of the country mm -hmm. who are outdoors all day in the extreme heat, but also breathing in that dust and, and uh, we're starting to see a lot of those people come down with valley fever, uh, which is a really terrible disease. Um, so that's, that's, again, one of those sort of like climate change and heat and dust and, uh, you know, vulnerable populations and social mm -hmm. justice. All of those things are like really tied together. Yeah. So um, previously you talked about vector-borne diseases. So what, what are these diseases and like how can we get them? Sure, so vector just means something that transmits the, the disease to you. And mm -hmm. so when we talk about vector-borne diseases, we're talking, in the US at least, primarily um, ticks and mosquitoes, but they could also be things like um, rats or cockroaches. Mm -hmm. um, I think the big ones for, you know, tend to be mosquitoes. Uh, so you can get, um, uh, uh, West Nile virus or chikungunya or, you know, we're starting to see dengue sort of um, and, and Zika, of course, recently creep up, especially in, in our southern states as those more tropical diseases can now survive in, you know, higher and higher latitudes. Right. Um, so, so mosquitoes can cause all of those. Ticks uh, are uh, the culprit for Lyme disease. And that tended to be for a long time that was very endemic in the northeast. Um, but we're starting to see some of that spread into Canada and even like, you know, move further west. And these sorts of, um, these sorts of vector-borne diseases are really uh, important to understand in the medical community because, you know, you might be a doctor in a state that's, that, you know, no one's ever come to you with Lyme disease before, or no one's ever come to you with dengue. 
And now we're living in a world where those things occur in your state or they, or Lyme disease is something you might see um, not just in June, but you might start seeing people coming in in May with, with mm -hmm. Lyme disease cases. So climate change is affecting when and where those diseases can be found. And so the, the medical community has to kind of be prepared for, for some of these things that they may never have had to face before. Right, because um, it's getting warmer at all latitudes and mosquitoes like warm and they like spreading viruses. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> so like that affects us in a terrible, terrible way. Yeah. Yep. So um, what advice would you give a young, a young student or just, just anyone who wants to become like um, in, in, uh, active in like the health, climate change and like policy, like, like what you do, right? So what, what advice would you give anyone who does that? Um, I would say that my advice is there's no one right way to do it. There's no one career path that you must take to work on climate change. And it goes back to what we talked about before. I think there's a lot of different ways to, to work on this problem and to be part of the solution. And mm -hmm. I've, I feel really strongly that we need more graphic designers and more artists engaged. You know, we need uh, musicians and chefs and, and um, you know, clothing designers engaged in climate change. Like the whole um, community. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, a lot of times when I talk to, you know, people who are in high school or early college, they have all of these interests, right? They're like, mm -hmm. well, yeah, I'm interested in climate change, but I'm also so interested in this and this and this and this. Mm -hmm. So my message to those people is don't, you don't have to give those up. You don't have to just choose just one. Um, it's okay to have multiple interests. You know, I, I, I have multiple interests. You know, I've, I've worked on a lot of different projects that have, have used those different strengths and different skills from all the different things I like. So um, if, you know, if you're thinking you have to decide whether you want to go into art or science, don't decide, please go into both. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, just before we get into my like last few questions, um, are there any like interesting experiences or anything like, like things that you think are especially worth sharing with the world and yeah. Experiences? Um, well, I guess, um, I mean, I I think I told you the story about, you know, growing up in Indiana and not, not really seeing an ocean and obviously it's not like I was climbing mountains or anything. So one of the things that I love about being a scientist is that it has allowed me to see more of the world. Um, and and uh, I got to do some research in Baja, for instance, um, which was really cool, you know, working on these um, coral-like structures called rotoliths, which are like corals that actually aren't stuck to the ground, but like roll with the tides. Really? Um, I, I got to go to Australia uh, and, you know, snorkel in the Great Barrier Reef. Um, <laughs> and... I mean, just in my personal life, I, I really like to, um, you know, hike and camp. And um, so it, it's, yeah, it's been, it, it's kind of fun to be a scientist because you get to explore all these places, you know, you get to go to places that you, you know, didn't grow up in and, and think about how they're all connected. And, and um, to me, it, I think doing those things helps me appreciate nature and the world. Like, um, I went to Alaska a few years ago for the first time and mm -hmm. um, backpacked in Denali and it's the most beautiful place I've ever seen um, ever and it it also gives you this sense of like oh this is 
this is an example where we did it right. You know, like we, yeah. we, the U.S. made this a national park and they, they preserved it and they saved it and they kept it pristine. And, and that's why it's, you know, still like this and still here. And it, it, it shows you how we can, we can totally do this. We've done mm -hmm. it before and, you know, the, we can do it right again. Yeah, definitely. So like, um, going back to the coral reefs, you talk, the corals that go with the tie, what are yeah. those? I, I, I don't think I've heard of them. Yeah, rod they're called rhodoliths, uh -huh. um, and they only occur in, in a, um, a few places around the world. Um, so there's just, um, they look like corals, uh, but they're just like free, you know, they're along the bottom of the ocean, kind of free floating. Oh, um, okay. Not floating, because they're on the bottom, but, you know, kind of rolling. Uh, and some of my work, uh, when I was a pa doing paleoclimatology work, you know, you're looking for things in the world where you can go back in time, right? So my work was looking primarily at ocean sediments and you would take this, you know, long core, kind of like the ice cores, if you're familiar with that, but mm -hmm. you would take like a long core of ocean sediment um, that over, you know, millions of years, tiny little particles would rain down to the bottom of the ocean and settled on the bottom of the ocean. And then you come and take this big core of it and you can go back in time and reconstruct what climate was like in all of those times. Corals are another, corals and rotoliths, the, the, that's another, um, uh, another thing in nature that you can use to go back in time because every year they grow, uh, you know, the, it's only the outer edge of corals that are, that are alive, right? All of mm -hmm. the inside of coral is that sort of like, you know, hard calcareous, uh, you know, skeleton. Um, so every year there's sort of like a growth ring, like a tree, right? Like every year you get another layer. Mm -hmm. And so you can actually, um, you know, drill into corals and go back in time and reconstruct what the water was like when that, you know, uh, growth happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really like how you said go back in time. That's, yeah. that's, that's really interesting. So um, well, I guess I'd, I'd like to ask, like, what did you learn from like, being able to go back in time, like what did you learn about what may what may happen, like the future? Yeah, um, it's amazing the tools that we have to go back in time. Um, that was um, that was really exciting to me. So my work in um, oceanography, I was using um, they're, they're called proxies because, of course, no one was actually there. Mm -hmm. You know, no one was <laughs> no one was you know standing in Monterey Bay 30,000 years ago and is now telling me what it was like. Right. They um, weren't so like taking notes. <laughs> right, right. And so I, instead of like knowing what happened back then, I use a proxy for what happened back then. Um, and there's a lot of different, different ways to do it. So in my research, I think I use six different ways to do it. Um, but some of those are isotopes. Um, some of those are called alkanones where you can, um, look at these fatty acids that are really resistant and uh, are still still down there in the bottom of the ocean uh, mm -hmm. and haven't been dissolved. You can look at different geological properties or the magnetism or the, you know, just even the types of rocks that you find in the sediments. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, hu humans are really clever. Like we've figured out a lot of ways to sort of reconstruct the past. Uh, and right. of course, I think at the beginning of our, our talk, I, you know, when you asked me about how I convince others that climate change is real and human caused, like, this is, 
this is what I learned from it. it you know, it was putting the changes that we're seeing now in context with the past, because mm-hmm. I think one of the arguments that a lot of skeptics say is, well, we've, you know, climate has changed in the past. Right. And they're right. It has changed in the past. It's changed a lot in the past. Um, but it, but when you look at the scale of the change and how fast it's happening now, we've never had that. Right. Um, and certainly not while humans have been alive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so that's probably, yeah, I, that's probably what I learned the most from my paleoceanography days. All right. Well, yeah, that's great. Actually, when you, when you said, um, the coral reefs floating with the, with the tides, I kind of imagined like, like a beach ball, just like <laughs> going up and oh, down. A little. Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> I forgot. I, I got that part, but yeah. like, <laughs> I imagine like humongous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and- and a lot of them, um, you know, because uh, because I was trying to reconstruct past, I wasn't really even in the water. I was out in the middle of the desert looking at places where the ocean used to cover that land mm-hmm. and now does not any longer. And so I was, you know, using a rock hammer going into like a big wall and, and pulling rotoliths from different parts in that, in that wall that used to be underground or used to be underwater, but now is above. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, thank you so much for coming here. And well, just as a reminder, we've been speaking to Miss Allison Crimmins. And thank you again. Thank you so much for joining me and uh, sharing your thoughts about climate change, um, the past and beach balls. <laughs> <laughs> You're All very right. welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. If you enjoyed this thrilling episode, be sure to subscribe to be notified when a new episode is posted. Don't forget to share women in environmental science with your friends and family so they can learn more about the problems that are being solved in the science industry. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned about the work researchers are doing in this field. This is Serenia Nantapandala signing off. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.